have this recurring nightmare. Everything around me is so white. I'm in some kind of prison cell. And I'm shivering. So cold. I know what it's like to be in a place like that. But only because I have visited them. Places like border patrol holding cells and ICE detention facilities. I have visited those places because of my job. I am an immigration activist. But the reality is, someday, I could also end up there not as a visitor. I could be detained because I'm an undocumented immigrant from Mexico. And it's a really scary time to be an immigrant in America. The president signing executive orders to direct money to start construction of his border wall with Mexico. Reportedly suggested shooting migrants in the legs to slow them down at the border. Pledged to crack down on sanctuary cities. Called for a ban on all Muslims. Mexico should step up and stop this onslaught, this invasion. A seven-year-old migrant child died of dehydration and exhaustion. The seventh migrant to die in custody. It can be hard to remember, but it wasn't always this way. There was a time not too long ago when a Republican president of the United States was talking openly about helping people like me. There are some in my party and a lot in the other party that want to build a wall between Mexico and the United States. I remind people, fearful people build walls. Confident people tear them down. Now, I don't actually remember President Bush talking this way. I was pretty young when he was elected. But Bush actually ran as a pro-immigrant candidate back in the 2000 election. And when he got into office, he made immigration reform his top priority. On September 5th, 2001, he hosted his first official state visit on the South Lawn of the White House. He had invited Mexican President Vicente Fox to talk about immigration. Mr. President, you are a Mexican patriot with a great vision for a great people. It was a friendly gathering. President Bush even took the opportunity to practice his Spanish a little bit. A Mexican proverb tells us that quien tiene buen vecino, tiene buen amigo. He who has a good neighbor has a good friend. Today, both our countries are committed to being good neighbors and good friends. Back then, most of the undocumented immigrants coming to the U.S. were from Mexico, like me. Presidents Bush and Fox talked about finding a way to give those of us in the U.S. without papers a path to legal status. Bush wanted a comprehensive immigration deal with Mexico to be his lasting legacy. We value the cultural contributions each nation makes to each other. We treasure the family ties that bind so many millions of our citizens. We understand that the border we share is a vibrant region that unites us. It's honestly kind of shocking to hear President Bush talking about the border as something that unites us. That was less than 20 years ago. But it's impossible to imagine a Republican president saying that today. These days, I hear people say things like, send them home and build a wall. So what happened? How did we get here? It all started just a few days after that meeting between Bush and Fox. They met on September 5th. Six days later, the world changed forever. Two airplanes, 
have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country. Like almost everyone who was alive in America at that time, I remember the September 11 attacks. I remember wondering why anyone would do something like that. But it never occurred to me that someday I would be lumped in with a terrorist. That's exactly what happened though. In the next few years, there will be all kinds of new national security measures targeting immigrants and a new government department with a vague mission statement. Keep the homeland safe. Today, that department, created with terrorism in mind, is more and more focused on immigration enforcement, and it's making us increasingly unsafe. This is Homeland Insecurity, a podcast about how immigrants like me became the enemy. I'm your host, Eric Andiola. I've lived in the U.S. for most of my life. I was born in Durango, a city in central Mexico, but my family has always been on both sides of the border. I have lots of extended family who are American citizens. My mom and I came to the U.S. in 1998 to get away from my dad, who was abusive. We entered without papers. I was only 11, so I didn't really get what it meant to be undocumented. But as I got older... I started to learn that there were some things that I couldn't do. I couldn't get a driver's license. I couldn't get a job unless he paid cash. I had to stay under the radar. But I persisted. I went to school. I played soccer. I was trying my best. I even got into Arizona State on a full scholarship. But then, Arizona passed a law that said undocumented people like me couldn't have scholarships. I was devastated. I went home and cried for two whole days. Eventually, I figured out how to stay in school and graduate. But it was a reminder that no matter how hard I worked, I could never have the same rights as an American citizen. That's why I became an activist. Today, I work for the Refugee and Immigrant Center for Education and Legal Services. You might know it as Raices. I'm the chief advocacy officer. Raises has been fighting bad immigration policies in the U.S. since the 1980s. And for the last two decades, that's often meant going head-to-head with the Department of Homeland Security. Since 9-11, DHS and its agencies have been responsible for separating families, denying asylum, and locking up hundreds of thousands of people indefinitely. In this podcast, we're going to talk to immigrants, like me, who've been affected by DHS policies. We're also going to talk to some of the people responsible for making these policies. And we're going to ask them why. We're going to ask them how I became the enemy. Because if you go back to the very beginning and ask people who were there when DHS was created, they'll tell you that immigrants like me were very far from their minds. In the spring of 2001, a few months before that meeting between Bush and Fox, Robert Bonner got a call from the president. Bush wanted to know if Bonner would be his commissioner of customs. When the president asks me to do something, I'm, I usually salute and say, yes, I will do it. Back then, the U.S. Customs Service was part of the Treasury Department. Its biggest mission was stopping illegal drugs from entering the country. That was something that Bonner had a lot of experience doing. He used to be in charge of the DEA, 
the Drug Enforcement Agency, under Bush's father. But a decade later, he was happily out of government. He was living in Los Angeles, working for a private law firm. And he wasn't sure he wanted to be customs commissioner. He had secretly been hoping Bush would ask him to be the attorney general. But some guy who'd been defeated for the United States Senate in Missouri, named Ashcroft, got that job. So U.S. Customs Service actually was a bit of a fallback. But Bonner took the job. And it would end up being a much bigger job than he had ever imagined. I certainly wasn't expecting the largest terrorist attack in the history of the world to take place uh, literally uh, the week before I was confirmed as the commissioner of U.S. Customs Service. In the morning of September 11th, Bonner was in Washington, D.C. He actually hadn't been confirmed by the Senate yet, but he had flown in from Los Angeles for a few days of briefings. He was still learning about customs and what he'd actually did. In those days, you wouldn't deign to actually take the office and start doing the duties of the position for which you've been nominated because that might offend some senator that they hadn't confirmed you yet. So uh, uh, I basically was just doing briefings. There was an acting commissioner and all of that. But then that morning, someone mentioned that a plane had flown into one of the World Trade Center towers in New York. I I just witnessed a plane that appears to have crashed into, uh, I don't know which tower it is, but it hit directly in the middle of uh, one of the World Trade Center towers. It seemed very strange. I and probably a lot of other people, but I know I thought, Well, you know, some private plane had somehow, uh, unbelievably, but uh, accidentally hit a tower. A little while later, while Bonner was in a meeting, someone interrupted and told him a plane had hit the second tower. A plane had come in uh, at a low altitude, appeared to crash into the uh, World Trade Center. And that seemed astonishing, and I think I immediately thought some sort of terrorist attack. Just as he had that thought, the emergency sirens in the building went off. I knew and everybody knew this wasn't a drill. It was get the hell out of there. Evacuate now. And I I got up from my chair. The only thing I did was I glanced out the window to the left as I was leaving my office. And I could see the Washington Monument. And just to the right of it, I saw a gigantic plume of black smoke. It was coming from the Pentagon. I mean, it was it was so enormous, and I can almost visualize there were red sparks in it. That's how I remember it, and it was so big. Uh, there are several now incidents that look for all that we can tell to be a major terrorist attack here in the United States. So I'm out on 15th Street, wondering what I'm going to do. Certainly nobody had prepared me for this part of the job. In that moment, Bonner wasn't actually sure what his job was. He hadn't been confirmed as customs commissioner yet. As far as Congress was concerned, he had no actual authority. There was a bar across the street from where he was standing outside of the Treasury Department. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just go over there. They have televisions and I'll, you know, I don't know, have a beer or something. Just then, a black car pulled up. The acting Treasury Secretary, Bonner's future boss, leaned out of the window and waved him over. Looking back at it, I mean, it was just strange that there he was waving at me to get in, like he knew I was going to come out of the building or or something. I don't know. 
And I didn't have any idea where he was going, but of course I did. They were going to the Secret Service Command Center. Bonner may not have actually been the customs commissioner yet, but it was pretty clear there was a national emergency. And in the last five minutes, people have come running out of the White House. So as soon as he got there, Bonner tried to size up the situation. I said, where is the acting commissioner of U.S. Customs? The answer was not reassuring. The acting commissioner was grounded in Canada and out of communication. Instead, the assistant commissioner for the Office of Investigations, John Verone, had taken charge. No one knew where the attackers had come from or what their motivation was. But Verone told Bonner he wanted to go to alert level one. You know, I've been briefed on a lot of things over the last, over the summer, but nobody briefed me on the security alert levels. What is security alert level one? It means every person, car, truck, and cargo container entering the U.S. has to be inspected. Bonner asked what would happen if they went to alert level one. And his answer is, we don't know. We've never gone to security alert level one. And I said, basically, in substance, well, if you need my approval, I'm approving it. Let's do it. It was like closing the door to the country. Traffic at the border crossings ground to a halt. Lines of trucks stretch for miles. So that my first decision as commissioner of the United States Customs Service was, as it turns out, not just going to security alert level one, but shutting down the border of the United States. But at the time, I'm making this call. I mean, um, Washington was under attack, and there was a belief that there might be other planes that were heading to essentially attack or strike Washington, the Capitol, the White House, uh, as well as the Pentagon. To me, it was... Uh, I mean, it was a no-brainer. In that moment, Bonner didn't know what he was trying to stop at the border. People, a bomb, a virus. He just knew that there was a threat. And he sensed that he had come from outside the country. The border only stayed at alert level one for a few days. But nothing would ever go back to the way it was before. The, 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 the questioning before 9-11 was, you're crossing the border from Canada into the U.S.? Um, you know, you're a citizen of the U.S.? Yeah, well, where were you born? Well, Wichita, Kansas. Okay, you're in. Uh, or you're a Canadian, but, you know, what's your purpose? I'm here to visit. I'm going to shop. You know, you're in. All of that had to change. My name is Giovanni Ordonez. I am the volunteer operations manager here at Raices. Back in 2018, we saw family separation in a very real way. And because of that, we had literally thousands of people wanting to get engaged in some certain way. They identified that what was happening was unjust. Asylum seekers are treated in very negative ways. At the point of being released from detention, a majority of the families have been separated. They are told that they have no rights in the United States and that their children have no rights, such as going to school. Through embrace of our undocumented brothers and sisters, they are able to restore the dignity and respect that no human should be neglected no matter their status. Our work depends on you. Donate at homelandandsecuritypodcast.com. On September 11th, Ted Alden woke up late. It was his day off. 
In 2001, he was a journalist for the Financial Times newspaper based in Washington, D.C. He hadn't even checked the news yet when he got a phone call from his mom asking if he'd seen what was happening in New York. I turned on the television and saw the towers burning. And my first thought was, I got to get into work. This is the biggest story of my life. He rushed to the metro station near his house. The trains coming out of D.C. were packed to overflowing. My train, as I recall, was the driver and me. So I, I had some odd thoughts that maybe I'm going the wrong direction. While he was on the train, a plane hit the Pentagon. At his office, people were terrified there would be more attacks. Of course, we know one of the planes was aimed at the Congress. That was the one that went down in Shanksville. Um, but there were rumors about attacks at the State Department. It was, you know, it was a situation of chaos and uncertainty. By the time Alden showed up, his editors had already assigned all the stories about what was going on that day. So Alden got assigned to do a story about what this meant in terms of U.S. policy. A friend suggested that he look at a report, something called the Hart-Rutman Commission. In 1998, the commission had been asked to evaluate possible national security threats to the country. And so I went and I dusted off the Hart-Rudman Commission, which had been this high-level report that had come out just months earlier, warning that the United States was likely to face this sort of terrorist attack. Alden didn't even know if the attacks were over. And here he was, reading a report that predicted them. There were a lot of suggestions, but one stood out to Alden. The commission recommended creating a new government department, the National Homeland Security Agency. And I said in that article, there's a pretty good chance that something like that is going to come about. Because that's, that's the way government works in these crises. Government doesn't invent particularly in a crisis. It says what's out there on the shelf that we can make use of to address this current situation. And the Hart Rudman recommendations were there. They were waiting. On September 12, 2001, Alden's story appeared in the Financial Times. It was buried somewhere in the middle of the newspaper. Alden was right. The government would end up doing exactly what the report suggested. And that would have huge consequences for immigrants. But the report didn't predict that part. It hardly mentions immigration at all. But that was before the attacks, before the government learned that the terrorists were foreigners. One of the first clues about who the attackers were actually came from customs, from Robert Bonner's agency. Within an hour of the second plane hitting the Twin Towers, Customs had come up with a list of 19 likely hijackers. They did so by using a system that was originally designed to find drug traffickers. It turned out not to be that complicated. There was a common credit card that was used for a bunch of the ticket purchases. Um, you had adjacent seats. In other cases, where it's okay, you know, this guy is sitting next to somebody else who we know is affiliated with Al-Qaeda. So, you know, the odds are 99.9% that this was another participant. And, and it turned out they got all 19 names right. It was impressive how quickly they figured it out. But it also revealed the problem. The, the U.S. government actually had all of the individual bits of intelligence and data that should have allowed it to foil the plot. But that information was not shared within the government in the ways that it should have been. And therefore, you had different agencies essentially operating in the dark. You had this silo problem. The silo problem. 
different parts of the government not talking to each other. And the Hart Roman report had the solution, a new Homeland Security Department. If everyone was part of the same department, they wouldn't miss the next 9-11. But President Bush was initially resistant to that idea. He didn't want a Department of Homeland Security. So this is what often happens in the U.S. government. The, rather than going to all the trouble of creating a new cabinet department, which requires congressional action, you appoint somebody in the White House to try to coordinate the different agencies with responsibility. And that's what Bush decided to do. On September 20th, Bush created a new position in charge of Homeland Security. He asked Tom Rich to fill it. Rich was a governor of Pennsylvania and an old friend of Bush. If you've met Tom Rich, he has a powerful presence, right? He was a, a, a Vietnam War hero. He's a tall, broad, handsome man. He's right out of casting, right? He was the guy that you wanted to be the face of the country after this uh, sort of, of horrible, uh, unprecedented attack. The, the, the tragic part about, about Ridge is that, that he was actually a pretty nuanced thinker. Rich was a Republican in favor of immigration, like Bush. He believed in free trade and thought openness was a good thing. He was a believer in the rule of law. He was a believer in civil liberties. And he wanted to find ways to better protect the country while respecting what he saw as the core values and the core ingredients of America's uh, success. And, and at the end of the day, he, he largely lost. In his new job, Rich had to get a lot of different government agencies to play nice. He needed them to work together on anti-terror initiatives. But all of those agencies reported to their own departments and secretaries. It was an impossible job. You know, there are a lot of agency turf battles in Washington. And the other parts of the government didn't particularly want to be coordinated. And so he was trying to carry out this very large mission with no particular authorities to, to carry it out. The mission was to identify terrorists before they attacked. But there were two very different ideas about how to do that. Rich wanted to use the same method Customs had to identify the hijackers, employing technology and information to pinpoint people who were acting suspiciously. So the needle in the haystack would be that if you're using intelligence tools, you get a, a precise metal detector and you, uh, you know, you, you run it over the haystack and you identify what part of the haystack the needle is and you bore carefully and you pull the needle out. That's an intelligence-driven approach. And that's what uh, many people in the Bush administration wanted to do after 9-11. Let's use information to identify people who we should be genuinely concerned about and otherwise allow lawful immigrants and travelers to get in and out of the United States pretty easily. But Attorney General John Ashcroft preferred to turn over every stone. The other needle in the haystack approach is, oh my God, there's a needle somewhere in that haystack. And so we got to check every damn straw of hay in that haystack to make sure it's not the needle. Treating every immigrant like a potential terrorist meant arresting and inconveniencing lots of people who had nothing to do with terrorism. It meant racial profiling and violating people's civil liberties. But there was one obvious advantage. It could be done immediately. 
the Justice Department could just dust off reams of immigration laws and regulations. And those were powers that were immediately available to law enforcement agencies. They could be deployed immediately and powerfully. And, and I think the danger for abuse was enormous. And, and those powers, as we know, have continued to be abused. A lot of people in the Bush administration cared about civil liberties, and they didn't like Ashcroft's blanket approach, including the guy in charge of immigration, Jim Sigler. He was the head of INS in 2001. Ashcroft was his boss. But Sigler didn't like the idea of treating every immigrant like a terrorist. Ziegler spoke up in that very first meeting and said, uh, you know, sir, we can't do this. This is anti-American. You can't go around and start arresting people uh, and interrogating them on a thin pretext. This is not what we do as a country. But Ziegler lost the argument. Americans didn't want to hear about gathering intelligence after 9-11. They wanted to see action. They wanted to see the tough guys actually being tough. Ashcroft's pronouncements that we're going to use every tool we've got, and we're, you know, if, if they're terrorists are out there, they should be scared, and we're going to find them, and we're going to throw them in prison. All that stuff, I think, played very well to a public that was extremely scared and, and worried after 9-11. Who cared if a few immigrants had their rights violated? if it kept everyone else safe. But that's a slippery slope. Stopping a common enemy at all costs might sound like a good idea. But the enemy of the government one day might be different the next. And once you made it okay to violate the civil liberties of certain groups of people, that's hard to walk back. But in 2001, Americans were terrified and willing to do just about anything. And so, the FBI and the INS quickly began rounding up immigrants they considered suspicious. Most of those immigrants were South Asian and Muslim men, people who looked like the terrorists. Three men from Detroit are now among the more than 100 people in custody, as law enforcement agencies follow thousands of leads. It's not the first time America has targeted immigrants when threatened. Just think about Japanese Americans during World War II. At first, Ashcroft's Department of Justice used whatever laws were convenient to justify arresting immigrants. In some cases, they canceled people's visas and then arrested them for being undocumented. But in June 2002, the Department of Justice proposed a formal policy, a program called NSEERS, the National Security Entry-Exit Registration System. It was basically a Muslim registry. Here's Attorney General Ashcroft announcing the program. We will ask individuals who are already in the country who, uh, who represent certain high national security concerns to come in and register, just as those who are now coming to the country will be asked to register. Under NSEERS, all males from 24 Muslim-majority countries who are not U.S. citizens or residents had to register with the U.S. government. Uh, those who refuse to comply and are already in the country if we discover them, we'll be taking steps for them to, uh, to be deported. The program labeled people as security threats just because of where they came from. It was the opposite of innocent until proven guilty. 
And if Ben Sears reminds you of Trump's 2017 Muslim ban, that's because they were thought up by the same person, Chris Kobach. Back in 2003, he was an advisor to Ashcroft at the DOJ. He led the team that came up with N. Sears. Kobach himself called the program a blunt instrument, but argued it was necessary for national security. Except here's the thing. Under N. Sears, more than 13,500 people were put into deportation proceedings. We don't know how many immigrants were ultimately deported, but we do know how many terrorists were caught because of NCRs. Zero. In the end, the program didn't last long. The Department of Homeland Security scaled it back in December of 2003 and ended it in 2011. But the idea that the government can treat whole groups of people as threats just because of where they came from, that's an idea that stuck around. My name is Sayani Rodriguez. I'm a case manager that provides social services in the children's program at Raices. As a social service provider, one of the biggest things that I try to work with my kiddos is for them to know that they have a right to an education here in the United States. I can tell you how many times kiddos have come to my office and have told me that their high school counselor, teacher, or a staff member has told them that they cannot go to college after high school graduation due to their undocumented status in the United States. So I go into schools and give presentations and I advocate for these students, for my students, and for all undocumented students who are in the pursuit of college. And I provide the staff with information and tools on how to decrease the barriers the youth face as undocumented students in the United States. Our work depends on you. Donate at homelandinsecuritypodcast.com. Robert Bonner was confirmed as a commissioner of the U.S. Customs Service a week after the attacks on September 19th. Pretty quickly, he and his team were pushing the idea of creating a single agency that would be in charge of the border. Because back then, Customs was in charge of things crossing the border, but INS was in charge of people crossing the border. Uh, by late September, it occurred to me that... Um, it was going to be very difficult to carry out the priority mission, keeping terrorists from getting into the United States, if we didn't have any immigration authority. And that was an INS a power in the immigration service. And we needed to have it in one agency. In October, Bonner went to a meeting at the White House where Ziegler, the head of INS, presented a plan to reorganize his agency. You know, shift the, the deck chairs around a little bit here Bonner was not impressed. After the attacks, the government realized that INS had issued visas to all 19 hijackers. So the idea of just reorganizing seemed ridiculous to Bonner. The INS is a severely dysfunctional agency. I say is, was. It was the only agency given the death penalty as a result of the 9-11 attacks. Bonner saw his opportunity. At the end of Sigler's presentation, he brought up the idea of merging Border Patrol with Customs. Ziegler's face got so red, I couldn't believe it. I thought he was going to punch me out right there. I mean, he was just visibly angry that I would even suggest this. And by the way, this is to the entire interagency community. But I did, because I was ready to drop that bomb. It was a less extreme idea than what the Hart-Rutman Commission proposed. 
It would just combine the border agencies, not create a whole new department. Tom Rich liked it. He floated the idea to the cabinet in December 2001. Well, you would have thought that all hell broke loose. Um, I don't think there was a favorable vote for doing this. The problem with Bonner's idea was that it would set off a turf war. Would the new agency belong to the Treasury Department, like Customs did? Or would it be part of the Department of Justice, like the INS? And because it couldn't answer that question, and neither one of them wanted to give up something, including budget, that's just the way Washington works bureaucratically. No one wanted to give up any other power. But doing nothing wasn't an option either. Especially after INS issued visas to some of the same hijackers in March of 2002, six months after they had died in the attacks. I did not see the reaction of President George W. Bush, but I am told that he just exploded. And that was the end of the INS. I mean, I think they were hanging by a thread before that, but that was it. Bush didn't want to create a whole new department. That's why he had appointed Tom Rich to coordinate the different agencies instead of starting a new one. But he also didn't want to appear weak on terrorism. Democrat Joe Lieberman had been pushing for a new Department of Homeland Security. And not too long after the INS scandal, Bush changed his mind. It was a much bigger change than what Bonner had imagined. And that's unfortunate because I'm not sure we actually needed an entirely new department to do this. But to do the merger bureaucratically, we had to have a Department of Homeland Security. We'll never know how the world would be different today if the HS hadn't been created. Bonner wanted a smaller agency, one that was focused on border security, but wasn't tied up with so many other agencies. Maybe it would have been just as bad for immigrants as the HS was, but maybe not. Maybe there would have been less money. Maybe it would have been less corrupt. Maybe it would have never created the same combination of national security and immigration that's led us to a very dark place. But we'll never know. In June of 2002, President Bush addressed the nation, proposing a new Department of Homeland Security. Employees of this new agency will come to work every morning, knowing their most important job is to protect their fellow citizens. He said DHS would be responsible for four primary tasks, and none of them were immigration. This new agency will control our borders and prevent terrorists and explosives from entering our country. It will work with state and local authorities to respond quickly and effectively to emergencies. It will bring together our best Other than border security, immigration wasn't really mentioned at all. It was all about intelligence and emergency management. Yet, THS would come to be known for its cruel approach to immigration enforcement. How did this happen? This new department would end up combining 22 separate agencies. Border Patrol would be combined with U.S. Customs to form a single agency called Customs and Border Protection, or CBP. And there would be another new agency called Immigration and Customs Enforcement. You probably know it as ICE. DHS would also now include the Coast Guard, the Secret Service, TSA, FEMA, basically any agency with a loose connection to stopping terrorism was included. And in that giant mess of bureaucracy, Robert Bonner became the first commissioner of CBP. His new agency made up about a fifth of DHS personnel and budget. 
The whole purpose of creating the Department of Homeland Security, the principal purpose, and creating a unified border agency, Customs and Border Protection, was to put ourselves in a better position to defend and protect our country, our homeland, quote-unquote, against uh, further terrorist attacks. That might have been the intent, but as we know now, CVP ended up being much more focused on immigration than on terrorism prevention. By March 2003, DHS was up and running with a $38 billion budget. Here's Ted Alden again, quoting a Bush administration official on the creation of DHS. He said, we've built a huge 186,000-person bureaucracy. And what is its job? Homeland security. It's not a projection of freedom. It's not the Statue of Liberty. It's not all those things which are written. Give us your huddled masses. Give us your poor, your starving. No, it's to build walls around America to keep us safe from anything disease, nuclear, radioactive, or humans that might cross our borders. And every day, they need to go to work and do something. And I I think that's exactly what happened. I mean, under the Bush administration, they built, in effect, this giant agency designed to keep bad things out of the country. And, And that ended up being a far more powerful legacy than... President Bush's attempt to find some balance between security and openness. For the rest of this series, we're going to take a closer look at how the decision to link national security and immigration led us to where we are today. People in my world, the world of immigration advocacy, we know that the creation of DHS changed things for immigrants. It made an already difficult system much worse. And we also know that this system is less than 20 years old that it doesn't have to be this way forever. That's a big reason why we decided to make this podcast, to help explain how it is that DHS came into being and then turned into the symbol of exclusion it is today. How it became known for separating families, for horrible detention conditions, and for turning immigrants away instead of embracing them. And now, in the time of COVID-19, for trapping people inside detention centers during a global pandemic. We're making this podcast to help shine a light, not just on these atrocities, but on the decisions that allow them to happen. Here's Jonathan Ryan, the president and CEO of Raices. I've been thinking a lot recently, particularly in this time of COVID-19, about DHS and how we got here, it's really like adding insult to injury that we responded to the 9-11 attacks by creating this monster, this Frankenstein, uh, this Leviathan department of DHS that stole our civil liberties, that committed violence against others. And yet here, 20 years later, when the moment arrives, when if ever this country needed to be defended again, Where were they? How well have we been protected? Where is the return on that investment of 20 years, of billions of dollars, of the sacrifice of millions of lives? And here we are, sitting ducks, once again. We made terrible mistakes after 9-11. How will we respond to this generational crisis? 
When DHS sprang into existence in 2003, not many people were paying attention to the big new bureaucracy that had just been created. But it didn't take long to start seeing abuses of its new powers. I think the challenge that the Border Patrol faces is that after 9-11, we went out and recruited Rambo when what we mostly turn out to have needed along the southern border specifically is Mother Teresa. That's next time on Homeland Insecurity. Homeland Insecurity is produced by Alexandra Garreton and executive produced by Jonathan Ryan and Brian Carmel for Raices. Special thanks to Stephanie Mayjoyce. And I'm your host, Eric Andiola. If you're moved by what you've learned in this podcast, then we need you now more than ever to get involved in the fight for migrant justice. Go to RaicesTexas.org to learn more. And one more thing. We're getting a lot of really disturbing comments on Apple and other platforms. Stuff like, you're here illegally. When you read these, you can tell it's from people who didn't even listen to the podcast. They just want to attack me because I'm an immigrant. The best way to help us fight these kinds of attacks is to rate the podcast and leave a review. If you listen this far, we absolutely want to hear from you.